Welcome to the Base Path Podcast brought to you by New England Baseball Journal. I'm your host, Dan Guttenplan, along with co-host Matt Feld, who recently returned from a prospect camp at the University of Virginia. Matt, how are we doing this week? Good, Dan. How are you? I'm good. How, how was that uh, prospect camp? What was that like? It was a really cool experience for our guys. I've been to Charlottesville a, a few times, and it's a beautiful city. Uh, University of Virginia is a beautiful campus. But for our players to get the, the opportunity down there to play in front of 17 different schools with a wide-ranging uh, academic background, athletic background, for them just to experience the college campus in a different part of the country, I think was was very, very valuable for them. So very thankful for the schools that were down there, but also uh, thankful for the opportunity to take those players down there so they can get a different sort of collegiate experience maybe than they would up here. Yeah, that is a great experience for all those guys. I'm sure they were grateful to get that. Um, now, today's guest on the podcast is on fire right now and his development of some of the top pitching prospects in the Northeast John DeRuin has served as a pitching coordinator at Hops Athletic Performance in Rhode Island, as well as for the travel program Northeast Baseball. Just in the last month, he's received credit for developing players like Alex Clemmy, who's p- pitching for the 18U national team right now, Ben Broody, who was just drafted in the 2022 MLB draft, Cole Taylor, who just committed to UConn, and Patrick Clemmy, an incoming sophomore who's committed to Vanderbilt. John, thanks so much for joining us in studio. No, I appreciate you having me, Dan. Excited to be here and excited to uh, talk shop. Yeah, it's. I now, do you get that sense too? I, I know, like from a media perspective, all these guys in the last month, I keep hearing John DeRuin. You know, he they're crediting you for their development. Does it feel like this all happened really fast, or from your perspective, has it been years in the making? Yeah, so I think like for me personally, my passion for player development started as a player myself. Um, you know, I think it was just, you know, because I was pretty average as a pitcher and I was always hungry for, for more information on how to better help develop myself. So, you know, when I got into coaching, you know, three, four years ago now, that was the approach I took to my players is like, you know, I need to be able to help them the best I can. And that's going to require me to grow and expand my knowledge base. Um, you know, and be able to relate to them the best I can. I think that's, you know, the most important piece is like the relationship matters, but the technical information that you're giving um, to each guy is extremely important because everyone learns differently. Everyone presents with a different, you know, anatomical, physiological structure, um, you know, in a different bandwidth that we have to work with. So, you know, I, I think for me going into this, I knew I wanted to build something special here in New England. Um, you know, I knew we had an untapped market of high level arms, you know, that, that could play at a really, really high level. Um, so, you know, that was my goal going in and, you know, so far it's been a lot of fun and I've been fortunate and blessed to work with a lot of really good arms in the region. Um, so it's been exciting, you know, and it's cool to see what, you know, a lot of these players have done and are, you know, hopefully going to continue to go on to do at the next level. John, how would you kind of describe your overall teaching method uh, when you maybe encounter a pitcher for the first time, regardless of their age? How do you approach uh, a pitcher and player initially, and what are kind of the first steps you use to determine what type of developmental method to use with them? Yeah, so each guy comes in, you know, for an initial evaluation, and at that point, like, you know, that gives me an idea of, you know, how they currently present as a mover, Um, you know, and I'm fortunate to work with two really good strength minds in in Greg Robbins at the Strength House and Matt Hopkins at Hops, so, you know, it's a collaborative effort to get a, you know, a a 30,000-foot view, I guess you could say, of, like, you know, okay, this is how each guy presents from a from a movement quality standpoint in terms of what they do on the mound, and then from like a movement option standpoint in terms of how they like functionally assess on a table. Um, so, you know, we work hand in hand in trying to you know figure out what are what are low hanging fruits. You know, what do we have to work with, um, and what do we need to improve upon? And I think like also to the initial assessment gives me an idea of like how does how is this guy going to potentially learn like. How does he respond to things that I'm talking about in the eval? 
you know, is he really locked in? Does he seem confused? You know, like, what are my methods going to have to be to, to reach that guy individually? And I, I think I learned a lot of that, like, right out of the gate in that eval process. Um, and then from there, like, you know, the first month for me and working with a guy is extremely important. You know, that gives me the base of, like, okay, what environmental constraints do I need to apply? Like, you know, what cues do I need to use? Like, does this guy more ex- respond to more external cues versus internal cues? And, you know, I think the first month is really, really crucial um, you know, to, to an individual's development, because I really get to learn, you know, like I said, how they best learn and kind of where we need to go. Now, when you were, uh, when you were just getting started, obviously the days of kind of just watching guys on a mound and saying, Hey, I'm, I'm evaluating his movement patterns are kind of over. Now there's so much technology mm-hmm. involved, whether it be video or rap Soto and all those types of things. What did you have to do, uh, to ramp up your business right, right when you get st- got started in terms of new technology? Yeah, so at Hops, we've always been pretty progressive. You know, even when I was there as a player, like, I remember we had the, the old Rap Soto unit, which used to, like, stand up behind the catcher. Um, it was, like, the, the first thing that people were starting to use to, like, in terms of, like, pitch, a pitch tracking, you know, device. So we were using that, like, while I was even still playing. Um, so when I came in, we, we had the ground Rap Soto unit. So I, I had access to, inform- like, technology and information right out of the gate, which, you know, not many people do. Um, and then in 2020, we transitioned to getting the portable TrackMan unit, um, which was something that I pushed hard at Hops just because, you know, Rapsodo, there's a lot of limitations in terms of like, you know, how it's tracking pitch movement, um, you know, versus what, um, what versus what TrackMan can provide. So, you know, with Rapsodo, we were like, okay, you know, we're getting something here with TrackMan. We, were, we said, okay, we, there, there's more that we're going to be able to access. So, you know, I, like I said, I was pretty fortunate right out of the gate within, you know, the first couple of years to pretty much have the top of the line technology to be able to use with my players. Um, you know, and, and I think that's been the biggest piece is like I, I try and keep things as objective as possible, you know, and, and you know, that's to me is the best way to develop play. Like, obviously, there's a subjective component, but, you know, we're chasing objective goals. So, you know, that, that's been huge, especially like in the initial evaluation process and the player development process too. like, you know, as I'm, I'm working with the guys like, OK, where are we starting? Where do we need to end up? Um, and then we can track that along the way. Like Dan mentioned, you've worked with a number of, of high-level players, right? But not everyone can be the level that those guys are at, mm-hmm. um, whether it's guys that are currently committed, guys that are currently playing pro ball. But I'm sure when people come into, regardless of what facility they're coming in to work with you, they have aspirations to turn into a Sean Burke or, or something of that nature. How do, you talk, how do you go about communicating with players what you feel like their ceiling can be, their potential can be, so that they have reasonable and realistic goals for themselves? Yeah, so it's funny. I say this to people all the time. Is like Alex Clemmy was a nobody. Ben Broody was a nobody. Um, you know, a lot of those guys started off as nobodies that no one knew about. Um, but, you know, they had this unmatched desire to want to get better. And I think that's, like, kind of what I look for in a player. And it's like I tell people all the time, it's like there is no telling how far you can take this. Um, you know, and, and, you know, when you look at what, you know, Alex Clemmy does, Ben Broody does, you know, all these guys that people see, you know, have had high levels of success, like, you know, they were at very low points in their careers, too, um, you know, leading up to the successes that they've had of late. So, you know, I tell people all the time, it's like it's all what you get out, what you put in, um, you know, and I'm going to invest in you and I'm going to help you take this as far as you want to take it. Um, so, you know, for me, honesty is always the best policy. Like I shoot people straight, you know, like not everyone is going to go play at that high level. But my job is to help you be the best version of yourself. And, and that's that's my goal. in this is like every guy is going to come in with a different ceiling, you know, a different floor. Um, but the way I approach it is like, hey, you know, my job is to help you make the be the best version of yourself. So, 
It's funny to hear you mention uh, Alex Clemmy as a nobody because right now, like you look at him now, if you had a, a blank canvas of how you would model a pitcher, you know, he's left-handed, he's 6'6", six, six, he's throwing 95, 96 miles an hour. Um, and you, so you've been at this for three or four years. He's been committed to Vanderbilt since uh, right after his freshman year. How did your relationship start working? How did you start working together? And what, what was he like? You said he was a nobody. Like what was his velocity when you started with him? So – he started with me February of 2020, so pretty much a month before, you know, everything shut down due to COVID. So they had reached out to us through Instagram, actually. Um, so he came in, was tall, lanky 14-year-old, and he's, his eval was 75 to 77, um, you know, and that was February of 2020. So I knew I had a lot of pieces to work with. Um, you know, if, if you told me we'd be at this point, you know, I would – probably chuckle a little bit, but I kind of knew we were going to be at this point, you know, and that's just like, it's, it's not arrogance. It's just, I, I'm, I know when I see something that's special and I know when I see someone who has the gifts physically and mentally to take it to a different level that no one else has achieved. Um, you know, and he was one of those kids, you know, he had, he was quiet. He was hungry for information. He wanted to learn. It wasn't always easy, you know, as a, as a lanky 14 year old left-handed pitcher, um, you know, there were ups and downs along the way, but I think, you know, for, for someone like him, like I said, he, he knew what he wanted, um, you know, and, and my job was just to kind of help steer him down that path to, you know, be where he is right now. And, you know, like I tell him, the work's not done. You know, like this is just one step in the process. The draft's not till July of next year. And even then that's just, you know, a foot in the door. Um, you know, like playing professional baseball at the highest level possible is extremely hard. So, you know, it's just being realistic with players throughout the process. And I'm always realistic, especially with someone like Alex is like, you know, he, like I said, he wasn't, you know, he wasn't this highly touted guy, you know, maybe even until this year. Um, and I think his, his failures along the way have helped shape and mold him to the competitor that he is now because um, it hasn't always been easy. How do you handle going about, there's a lot of talk around strength and conditioning, travel baseball in general, financially, right? It's very sure. expensive across the board. I don't think it matters anymore what program you play for. I know some programs like to say they're more affordable, less affordable. Regardless, it's a big investment for, mm -hmm. for a family. How do you kind of, uh, kind of approach families and players? Uh, you know, you're they're you're counting on them to trust you, and vice versa. That the investment they're going to make is going to pay off. What type of tools do you use, and and how do you kind of display to these families that what they're investing in is going to pay off down the line? Yeah, I mean, I think like social media is a big tool. Like, and I've tried to to utilize social media as a tool to like show a proof of concept, I guess you could say, um, you know, and, and that's kind of what attracts people, you know, to me, I guess, is like what they see on social media. Um, you know, and, and, and like I said, it, it's, you know, when, when people come in, I never tell anyone, hey, you're going to throw 95 miles an hour. Like, you know, it's, and, and like you said, there's plenty of that going on out there. And I see it all over social media across the country. It's like, hey, if you spend, you know, $2,500, you're going to throw, you know, 10 miles an hour harder in a month, um, which is just not true. But, you know, and I, I just tell people like, hey, this is this is a commitment. It's like you commit to a college, you know, like you're committing to this program to be by your side throughout the entirety of your high school career. Um, and I just think we, in 2022, we live in this, you know, world where everyone just wants everything instantaneously. And, you know, I'm honest with people that that's just, that's not how it happens. You know, it, it's this long-term process. So, you know, it's just balancing that is hard because there's so many temptations. You need travel ball, you know, like you do need a place to play where you can showcase yourself in a game environment. Um, you know, but also the developmental piece is extremely important. You know, if you're throwing 75 miles an hour at 15 years old, like 
maybe going to play isn't necessarily the answer. And there are even, I mean, I had plenty of college guys this summer that sacrificed playing, you know, in the Cape or in the NECBL because they knew they needed to improve and get better. So I think it's, you know, it, it's being honest with parents on like, okay, well, what is it that your son needs at this point to help get him to where he says he wants to go? And then, you know, it, it's up to them to ultimately decide what it is that they want to do. It's interesting that you mentioned that long-term approach because I was talking a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Middleborough Little League. I don't mm-hmm. know if you saw that 12-year-old team. They went to Williamsport. And I was talking to their coach, and he was saying in the beginning of the summer there were like six or seven kids on his team who said, um, we're going to also play Babe Ruth at the, at the same time that the Williamsport, you know, the, the road to Williamsport tournament is going on. So in the, in the state uh, competition, New England's and all that, these kids were going to have conflicts, but they really wanted to kind of keep their career moving and play on the bigger fields at the Babe Ruth level. And he said to them right away, look, this is your 12-year-old all-star year. We have a really good team. We have a chance to make it to Williamsport. Don't rush your development. Like, you know, take your time, get, get an opportunity where you're going to get to play in Williamsport if this team does what I think it can do. Is it difficult to slow people down when they're saying, hey, I, I need 10 miles an hour of velocity or, hey, I need to play on a bigger field and just say, hey, like, let's take it slow. Let's not risk injury. Let's not push the envelope too far here. Yeah, I think, uh, well, we live in a social media world, and I think that's, that's great, but it's also a problem because kids see other kids and they see all these guys throwing, you know, X velocity at X age and you know, it, it, it's you get caught up in this arms race of like I need to be at that level, um, and that's something that I talk to people about all the time. Like you need to run your own race um, because I mean I, I look at even the professional guys I have as an example. I mean AJ Politi, who's with the the Worcester Red Sox right now, is on the precipice of potentially getting. He was an 18th rounder and signed for 20 grand, and you know it, it, at the end of the day, it's not where you start; it's where you finish. Um, so. I tell players that all the time is, okay, it's, it's cool to see that on social media. It's cool to say, like, this is where I want to be, but your timeline is going to be different, and everyone's timeline is different. Um, but it's good to have goals that you're trying to work for. But, yeah, it, it is. It's, it's slowing people down and, and getting them to understand, like, development's the priority. Um, and at the end of the day, we need to make sure that, that you're developing as an individual, not trying to develop with the masses. Um, and I think that's a problem now in, you know, 2022 is everyone wants to be at a certain point. And it's like, hey, just, you know, slow down, run your own race, trust you're going to be there. What's your relationship like with, with NEB? Of course, I know you're a crucial part of their organization, but just speak to how your strength and conditioning and your pitch development side of things coordinates with what you do with them. Yeah, so pretty much uh, I, I pretty much oversee the, the organization from like a pitching development standpoint. Um, you know, fortunately, I'm not too far away where a lot of guys bounce back and forth between coming to me at Hops and then me going to, you know, the barn up in, up in Harvard. So, so, yeah, so, I mean, Greg Robbins and I work pretty much hand-in-hand. Hand. I mean, he, players go into him for assessments. They come into me for assessments. Him and I collaborate. I mean, we did that, you know, this summer pretty much with the, you know, with the college group that we had. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a working relationship in the sense of like what he's doing with guys matters just as much as what I'm doing with guys. And we need to be on the same page in order to maximize how they're develop like developing, um, because it's a holistic approach. So, you know, what's going on in the weight room in terms of cleaning up something from like an overall movement capacity standpoint is going to directly impact my, what I'm able to do with the player on the mound. Um, because what, like I say this all the time, if it doesn't exist in isolation, it won't exist in context. So, you know, if we don't have the capacity to be able to 
perform something, even just functionally an assessment on a table, like we need to be able to access that range of motion first before we ultimately are able to get it, you know, when we're on the mound. So my job is to communicate with him, understand what limitations I have to, to work with, and then be able to just structure what I'm doing with a guy based around, like I said, their, their own unique bandwidth. Yeah, that strength and conditioning uh, collaboration, you know, with a pitching instructor is so important. You know, you hear the word prehab now so much, and it's not a word that we would hear a lot, uh, you know, five, ten years ago. But it seems like now it all has to come together. Um, Do you have instances where, you know, you'll need to kind of lean on him and say, hey, um, you know, we're not even we're going to we're not going to solve all these problems on the mound. Like there are some other things that we need to work on. And how does that uh, how does that play out? Yeah. So, I mean, and that's something I do both at hops with Matt, who I work with, who's, you know, DPT and, you know, has a CSCS and, and Greg as well. So, so I'm, like I said, I'm fortunate to have two really good strength minds that I can fall back on for certain things. And if, if a guy comes in and presents with limited, you know, right hip internal rotation as a right-handed pitcher, you know, we know that we need to fix that in the weight room. I'm not going to be able to just fix that on the mound, but I know I have something to work with. Right. So, so ultimately as he's, as he's, you know, fixing that in the weight room and doing stuff to, to help, you know, make that better, you know, now I'm doing what I need to do, you know, from the throwing side to be able to work within, you know, what I have. So, so like I said, it's this collaborative effort, like I said, that kind of, you know, looks at guys just as, you know, functional human beings first. And then, you know, I look at them in the context of throwing and say like, okay, well, what constraints do we need to be put in? You know, what drills do we need to add? What cues do I need to give that's going to ultimately draw upon what this player has? And then as we chip away at it over time in the weight room, you know, ultimately we see it kind of all come together, you know, on the mound. The Base Path Podcast will be back after these messages. Are you serious about playing your sport in college? Do you need a flexible education that allows you to maintain your practice and competition schedules while also preparing you to succeed at the next level? You should check out the University of Nebraska High School. UNHS is accredited and offers more than 100 online courses, including NCAA-approved courses to protect your academic eligibility. Students could earn a UNHS diploma or take a single course for transfer credit. Courses are college prep, self-paced, and available 24-7, 365. Enroll anytime and take up to a year to complete a course. Visit highschool.nebraska.edu today. Looking to keep up with all the latest news and information on New England baseball? New England Baseball Journal and BaseballJournal.com are the premier resources for information and inspiration on the New England baseball scene. Have every issue of New England Baseball Journal, the magazine, delivered to your home or office. And don't forget to stay in the game every day with a digital subscription to BaseballJournal.com to receive baseball coverage on clubs, college commits, prep and high school, division one, two, and three colleges, showcases, rankings, and much more. Get in the game and behind the scenes now by going to baseballjournal.com. Just click on the subscribe button and start the subscription that is right for you today. New England Baseball Journal is a Siemens Media publication. Siemens Media. Inspiring. Informative. Insightful. John, how do you tell your pitchers currently to kind of approach the recruiting process? Because, of course, it works differently for everybody. Some kids get immediate gratification when they when they step in, their, step in the door at high school, their freshman year without ever throwing a varsity pitch, and others wait till senior year to, to kind of figure out where they're going. How do you communicate that side of things with the people that you work with? 
Yeah, so, I mean, it's definitely something that we discuss. Um, I try not to put it at the forefront uh, because I think it just happens organically. I mean, I know you just had Cole Taylor on -hmm. the podcast or you interviewed with him, and, you know, Cole was an example of someone that came in, you know, he he threw with me one time right before the Futures Games, came back from PBR Futures Games. A couple weeks later, was in the facility. He had spent a lot of time working on the stuff that, that we, you know, had discussed, and it's funny uh, Josh McDonald that you kind of texted me that same day and was like, Hey, you have any 2024 arms for me? And I was like, ah, I don't really have anyone right now. Um, Cole comes into the facility like three hours later. I text him back. I'm like, scratch that. I got a guy for you, you know, send a video. He's like, Hey, can you come to camp in a couple of weeks? And, you know, goes to camp 8892, filling up the zone, multiple pitches for strikes, you know, threw well on both days. J Mac calls me, Hey, like we, we want to offer him. Um, so, I mean, it just, it's something that I try not to force. I mean, I feel like I have a good enough relationship with college coaches. I can really just pick up the phone and say, Hey, I got this guy and you know, they're going to trust what I'm saying. Um, so I tell guys like, don't stress about it. Don't worry about it. Like we will help you when the time is right. So like I said, Cole's a great example of of that where it was like, there was nothing that he was really worried about. It just kind of happened. He did his thing. And then, you know, he was able to, you know, pick up an offer from UConn and ended up being the right fit. I mean, I have numerous examples of guys that's happened to where, you know, as long as they prioritize what they're doing developmentally and I see that they're putting in the work, then they know that I'm going to help them. Cole Taylor is an interesting one because you said uh, earlier, you know, you're looking for guys to make that commitment for the entire high school experience. His experience, he said he came in uh, this summer and it, he was like 86 to 88. Mm-hmm. He, he did two sessions with you and then all of a sudden he's 88 to 92. How did that happen so quickly for him? What adjustments did you make to his delivery? Yeah, so so Cole's a guy who's he's a strong dude. Um, he's a physical kid, um, you know, and I just don't think he really understood the the balance between like utilizing his brute strength and then also being somewhat elastic in nature. Um, and it was just really getting him to like properly time intent flow down the mound better, be able to leverage the ground better, and then be able to ultimately segment rotation between pelvis and torso, not to get in the weeds, but, um, you know, and then just be able to to better time things, um, you know, and then be able to rotate on time at a higher velocity. So, you know, that was something that we talked about, and, and he kind of grasped the concept quick, like, and even when he came in, it was funny that day, I said to him, like, you've been working on this stuff? And he was like, yeah, like, I've been doing it at home, like, I've been in the mirror trying to feel things out, like, I was like, all right, sick. Like, all right, let's see what happens on the mound today. So he gets on the mound, and he says 88, 91, ball's coming out of his hand. Like, it was the best I'd ever seen him move. And I had seen him throw for any B a few times, but I never worked with him in, like, a, you know, controlled setting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that was something. And that doesn't happen all the time. I think people see that, and they're like, oh, my God. Like, you go, uh, I go to Johnny, he's going to, you know, add three miles an hour to my fastball in one session. Like, Cole had a very good base to work with. He was already throwing hard for his grade and his class. Um so, yeah, I mean, that was that was a pretty cool, you know, story and just how that kind of played out. But, you know, that doesn't happen with everyone. But that's just an example of, you know, like a kid who already came in with a good, you know, base to work with. You know, I kind of understood how he moved already. And, you know, we were able to kind of just work within that. And, you know, he saw he saw that jump within just a couple of sessions. Hmm. From a travel baseball standpoint, you know, kids throw a lot now, probably mm-hmm. more than they ever have. Right. We're talking about throwing throughout high school pitching for the travel team in the summer. Most travel programs have some sort of fall outline schedule, whether it's tournaments, showcases, what have you. So kids are really only maybe not throwing competitively for two months, three months. What's kind of your overall position and stance on maybe the increased workload from an increased amount of showcases, tournaments, on top of high school baseball that kids are now facing? Yeah, I mean, that, that's something that I have conversations with people about all the time. Um, it, it's a balance. It, it, to me, it's, it's you need to prioritize health first, 
Um, and I think when you look at, I think high school to me is honestly the biggest problem um, because you have kids going in, they're playing multiple positions, they're pitching, they, they have this extremely high workload on a daily basis. I know the pitch count rules in Rhode Island are totally absurd where you could throw 100 pitches, come back on four days rest, and then throw 20 pitches in a game and then start again. So you could pitch twice, like two days in a game, you know, in a seven-day span. Um, you know, potentially three days too, if if it gets to that point. So I just think the, the the rules, like coaches abide by the rules. I mean, I don't expect every high school coach to understand how to manage a player's workload. I mean, that's I don't think that's really a realistic goal either um, to get everyone to understand. But I think the people in charge need to do a better job of putting the rules in place that coaches abide by that actually makes sense for player health. Um, so I think that's like that's a bigger problem even than the showcase world because the showcase world you sign up and you elect to go. Um, high school baseball, you have no choice. You show up, your coach tells you what to do, and then, you know, that's it. So I think, like, you know, we as in the private sector need to do a better job at communicating um, and, and kind of expressing concerns to people who are making decisions at this high school level. Um, but, yeah, I do think the showcase world is definitely it's definitely an issue, too, when, when parents get caught up in it. Um, and, you know, people are like, okay, well, I need to go to this, this, and this because they're promising me that this, this, and this will get me to the next level. That's unfortunately just not how it works. But so I think it's just, it's, it's making sure people understand right out of the gate, like these are the expectations you need to have for how this is structured, how this is going to go. And ultimately it's about your son's health first and foremost. So that's something that I communicate with parents and, and kids all the time is like less is more quality over quantity. Ultimately, if, if we're going to events, we need to make sure you're ready to go to these events, not just like show up because, oh, I'm going to get cool gear and I'm going to have a page on PBR or Perfect Game. It's about making sure that the, the quality of the event is right and then also you're ready to actually go and perform at that event. Yeah, Matt and I were saying, we were talking before the podcast, that I don't, I don't know if it's unique to baseball, but it seems like parents in baseball are really focused on the return on investment. So, hey, I'm investing $5,000 in you know this travel program, and then I'm paying for pitching lessons on the side, and where's the college scholarship? Like, that's that's got to be the payoff. Whereas I feel like, you know, in a lot of sports, it's, hey, we're working on development and being a great teammate, and they're learning lessons, and we're paying for the facilities so they can gather with other kids and, you know, the social aspect of it. Do you feel like there's more pressure on you uh, in the private sector with parents who are saying, hey, we want a return on this investment? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think that's just the nature of the business. Um, and, and it's something that, I don't take lightly either because parents are coming to me with their child, um, you know, that they care about. So for me, I understand that and respect that. And like I said, I also need to be honest with the parents um, and, you know, the kids themselves to say like, okay, well, ultimately, hey, this is where I think we can get to. And it's just, and that's a constant conversation. That's not just something that we do in the onset where I say like, hey, okay, this is where I think we can get to. It's constant evaluation, you know, over the course of say month to month even. Um, and that changes. I mean, I have kids where I'm like, I don't know where this kid's going to fall to, hey, this kid's a division one pitcher. Um, so I, I think it's just, and like I said, when, when, when people come in, I tell them you're committing to something that you've probably never committed to before because my job is to help you develop. I'm not, I'm not signing you up for games or showcases or just showing up at the field and, you know, running a, a team practice. Like this is about you and your long-term development. So it's setting that standard right from the onset and constantly evaluating. 
I think that's what's important too is constantly evaluating where a kid's at and having that dialogue with parents. Um, and I try and keep as open of a line of communication as possible with the parents of the kids that I have because, like I said, it's their kid. I understand that. They're concerned. They want what's best for their kid, but it's also being realistic. How do you handle uh, – do you coach this team in the summer? No. Uh, a little bit. I guess no is not the total answer. I mean, I help out with our 17U team for, like, one tournament, but that's really it. I try and try and avoid the on-field stuff um, because it can just be a little chaotic. And also, too, I like to bounce around at times. Like, I'll go see our 16U team play or I'll go see our 15U team play. But, yeah, in this summer we did a lot of college stuff, so I was tied down to being here. So I don't do as much on-field. I'm actually coaching at Worcester Academy um, this spring with Mike Abraham. So, I'm looking forward to that. We have a great group, so that'll be a lot of fun. But that'll be, like, the first time I'll really be on the field. Yeah, I wanted to ask um, – so we had Matt Blake on the podcast, like, a year ago. And the one thing that just stuck with me is – and you had mentioned earlier, this is totally, like, an untapped market where it's pretty new where people are starting to break down pitching so much in a scientific way and with the new technology that's out there. Uh, what type of training did you have to do after your playing career? Like, I remember Matt Blake was basically, I taught myself, you know, he was watching videos and doing a lot of reading and there's not, it's not like you go to school and, uh, study pitching mechanics, you know, there's kinesiology and stuff like that, but it's not so related. How did you educate yourself so that you could become the expert on this? Pretty much the same way. Um, so yeah, I, I, I immersed myself in as much as I could, especially during COVID, to be able to just, like I said, expand upon my knowledge base. And I, I, I think there, there's so much out there that's good, but there's so much out there that sometimes you get lost in what's good um, versus what's bad. And for me, I just try, I, I knew I had a good base because like I said, I, I had trained at hops as a player. I was going up to Cressy to throw. Um, I was close with Christian wonders who was there after Matt Blake um, and, and Christian, I credit a lot of like the base of my knowledge to my time working with Christian as a player. So for, for me, it was just building upon that. And I had an idea of the resources that I needed to utilize to be able to better understand like the, the holistic approach to pitching development, not just from like a, a biomechanical standpoint, but from a pitch data standpoint, you know, like I said, understanding, okay, well, what does track man data mean? It's all these numbers, but like, how do we actually decipher what's good versus like what we don't need and what's fluff? So that was that was the biggest thing for me was I would say COVID. I spent a lot of time immersing myself in as much research as I could. And then it's also making connections with people. I think like just getting on the phone with someone who you respect and regard in the industry as being one of the best minds and just trying to learn as much as you can from them is important. And I think that's been the best part for me is the relationships that I've built in this game and in this industry because it's a very small group of people that I think think at a very, very high level and have a like do a really good job of relating that information to players and i've always tried to connect myself with those people um like i said it's it's like i said it's a very small community of people but picking their brain and understanding okay well how do they approach certain players what are they thinking about here what's their plan of attack it's kind of helped me formulate my own personal model of how i go about player development what's what's your overall uh approach when it comes to Using TrackMan data, like you said, with players, players are like, "What the heck am I looking at?" Like a lot of cases, a lot you'll you'll find players that are um, self sufficient in their aspect that they kind of already understands maybe what the data means. They read up a lot, uh, they have a good understanding, they watch videos, what have you. But how do you approach a player that's like has no idea what horizontal and vertical break are, or has no idea what spin efficiency is? How are you able to pare that down into layman's terms so kids understand what the heck you're talking about? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely hard when you're talking to a high school kid who doesn't understand any of it. Um, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it definitely is. So, But that that's the fun part about it, as I think if you can break it down to this very small level that's digestible for the player, then ultimately they're, they're going to better develop because of that. Because it's like, oh, well, John was able to relate that to me. Um, and they feel like you have that personal connection with what like ultimately they need. So... For me, like if I'm talking about track mandate, it's like I try and use visuals as much as possible, like in just literally showing them how we want the baseball to be spinning, um, and just showing them ball flight and like getting them to see like, okay, well, ultimately we want the pitch to be starting on this path, and then we want it to ultimately deviate to move on this path, and, and then it's like, oh, okay, well, horizontal break is movement to the left or right, you know, vertical break is like, okay, the if if this pitch is fighting gravity or working with gravity, um, and you know, under the game to understand what backspin versus topspin is or side spin versus gyro spin, like what's transverse spin, like, oh, okay, that's active spin, like getting them to, and then you start to be able to get into the weeds and then they actually understand it. So you start at this very rudimentary level and then it's like, okay, well now we finally have the base in place and then they start to really understand it. I mean, when Ben Broody came in, he couldn't tell you anything of what it meant. And now I could probably hire Ben Broody to do my job for me. Um, and that was, like I said, two, three years ago. So a lot of these guys, they had no idea what it meant and then they become really well-versed in it. And that's where you see careers take off. You mentioned there's such a small community of people who really know what they're doing. Uh, and I, I thought back to Alex Clemmie's recruiting story at Vanderbilt. I remember, because um, when you think about it, like you started working with him in February of 2020. He didn't even play uh, that spring for his high school program, and he ended up getting a, an offer at Vanderbilt. How did that come about uh, related to that small community of uh, experts? Yeah, that's another fun story. So I'm close friends with Ty Blankmeyer, who's now the recruiting coordinator at Duke. So at the time, he was the Northeast Area Scout for the Brewers. So Ty had organized Zoom calls. This was probably late April, early May, with a lot of pitching minds in the Northeast. So long story short, Scott Brown happened to be on one of those Zoom calls. So Scott Brown coached with Ty's dad, Ed, at St. John's way back when. So they obviously have a you know a tight family connection. So, so Ty had set up these Zoom calls. I remember getting off of them, getting off of one one night, and Alex had literally just come to my house to throw with me. And at the time, I was doing stuff at my house in my front yard. Um, so Alex had just come to my house. He had thrown, literally pivoted, hopped on that Zoom call, Next morning, I call Ty. I'm like, Ty, I got this kid. You know, everyone says they have a kid that they think can play at Vanderbilt. I know how this works. Like, I'm not delusional, like, in the sense of I know everyone thinks they can, they can go play at Vanderbilt. So I said, well, what do you think? I said, I'll, I'll send you a video of this kid. You let me know what you think, and then we can kind of go from there. So he takes a look at the video. He's like, all right, I'll send it to Brownie. You know, I'll, I'll get his thoughts. I'll feel him out first, and then I'll let you know what he thinks. So 10 minutes later, he texts me back. Brownie loves it. So I get a text probably like 30 minutes later from Scott Brown at Vanderbilt. Um, he's like, hey, John, you know, Ty had sent me a video. Alex would love to hop on a call, whatever. So, and that was like how I started my relationship with Scott Brown on, a, on you know, a more personal level. And I consider him someone who's, you know, helped and mentored me a lot over the last couple of years, just, you know, through conversations that we've had. And I regard him as being, you know, one of the best, if not the best pitching coach in the country at any level. Um, so, I think, you know, that was that was a cool story and how that started. So they started their dialogue, the whole recruiting process, I guess you could say, formally started. So he had calls with Alex. I mean, he was just sending video at that point. I think Alex went to go pitch at some PBR event that was live-streamed and whatnot. He was, like, up to 85, 86, threw well. And then at that point, Brownie calls me. He's like, hey, we're going to offer him. It's like, okay, cool. So, you know, and then at that point, that's where Alex wanted to go, and the rest is history. Hmm. That's amazing. 
What is your overall thoughts on the current state of travel baseball and maybe amateur baseball just in general? We could talk about this probably for about 5,000 hours. <laughs> uh, but just when you take a look at the overall landscape, both with the players you work with, the people you work with, and also just as you get an overall feel for kind of where everything's at, what's your overall perspective of where we're at currently with, with amateur baseball? I think it's a mess, uh, for lack of a better way to describe it. I, I think people are too no curse words were used that was pretty impressive (laughs) yeah i i think i think it's a mess uh i i think players and parents and programs are just caught up in all of the wrong stuff and and i like i said it's just my own personal experiences because alex Clemmy never went to a showcase to go pitch at vanderbilt university and you know cole taylor never went to a showcase outside of what i know to go get an offer from uconn i mean same thing with you know a majority of guys that i've had it's just been they come in, they develop, and then when the time is right, I will facilitate that conversation. And that's and that's something we talk about at NEB all the time is, like, I think that's the cool part about our program is, like, you're paying to be a part of something that's going to get you to that next level, you know, and, and you don't really need to do more outside of what we're providing you to get to that point. And, and I think that's, like, our thing as a program is individual development is the priority. Like meeting each player where they're at is ultimately going to be what gets them to that next level. Like we're not, yeah, we have a team practice once a week, but that's not our selling point. Like that's not, that's not how we go about marketing what we do to players. Um, and, you know, I think the run of success that we've had as a program is, is it speaks for itself, you know, with the Matt Tabers, the Ian Seymour's, Ryan Cusick, Jared Schuster, Ben Broody this year, you know, hopefully things go well for Alex Clemmy this year. And it's just been us prioritizing, what each individual needs. And I think that's where the market needs to go. Uh, And I think, yes, showcases are good if it's at the right time. And that's something that we preach all the time as a program is, hey, if you get where you need to go and you ultimately invest in yourself first, then we'll take care of the rest on the college side. Don't worry about having to immerse yourself in all these different things and avenues that you could potentially go down that sometimes just lead to, you know, this black hole of nothing. So I, I think... We feel like we have a pretty good model of how we do it. I feel like I have a pretty good model of, you know, how I develop guys and how I work with guys. And like I said, I I, I have said myself, because I work with guys from every, like, programs all over the Northeast. Um, so for me, I just have established relationships just because I want to be able to help my guys individually. Hey, if you're coming to me, you're not just going to get, you know, a higher level experience from a pitching development standpoint. I'm also going to help you with the college recruiting stuff, with stuff with the draft, you know, if, if we get to that point. Uh, the last question from me, um, obviously you mentioned, you know, Alex, he's, he's off playing with the U18 national team now, uh, I think down in Florida, is that in Fort yeah, Myers? Correct. Yeah, uh, Ben Broody's off playing professional baseball now in Arizona. What is your level of communication with those guys after, you know, they move on to the next thing? Every day, every day. Yeah, I still, I talk to, I, I, even our pro, my pro guys, I mean, it's this constant communication and. I think even at the highest level, I don't think what people realize in the world of professional baseball is like teams have access to a ton of internal data, but ultimately the communication player to player is, you know, may not necessarily be there. So for me, I'm fortunate to have a lot of access to private data that's not available to the public. So I'm communicating with my players on a daily basis. So, you know, even like Sean Burke, funny story, Sean had reached out to me in July. He's like, dude, like I just got ripped this month. Like I got to figure out what's going on. And so we sat down. I was actually down in Georgia um, with our 17U team. We were on a Zoom call. We went through, you know, a bunch of different things and changing his attack plan and pitch usage and count leverage. Okay, like 
like this is what the platoons look like against lefty versus righty. Like we need to kind of clean this up here a little bit and get you back to pitching to your strengths. So long story short, short Sean went out month of August was Southern League pitcher of the month and had his best best month as a professional. So yeah, even at that highest level, it's this communication that exists on a daily basis. You know, guys text me post outing. I mean, I'm sometimes up till one a.m. because guys are on the West Coast breaking stuff down. Um, so. I talk to these guys every day. Like I was on the phone with Alex last night, you know, after, after their game. I mean, Ben's actually coming home today. So, you know, which is going to be good to get back at it for, for this off season leading into his first spring training. So yeah, we talk every day and that's a personal relationship that exists, you know, and that's to me is important. But like I said, that personal relationship only accelerates if you have the technical information to be able to help players develop. So yeah, it's one piece of the puzzle, but you know, it, it means nothing if you can't help players actually get to a level where they're going to be able to succeed and perform at a high level. All right. Well, John, thank you so much for coming in studio. It means a lot that you took the time. It sounds so much better when we get our guests in here. So thanks to John DeRuin for joining us on the Base Path Podcast. Rate, review, subscribe to the Base Path Podcast on your preferred platform. Thanks to our producer, Steve Safran. The Base Path Podcast is a Siemens Media production. <laughs>